Locked on NBA. The biggest stories, the local experts. Every Monday, we dig into the biggest stories in the NBA with the Locked On Podcast Network hosts. Today, we'll stop in Utah to speak with David Locke about the Jazz's first round win and their matchup with Houston prior to game one. We'll go to Toronto to chat with Sean Woodley of Locked On Raptors about the Raps' first round win and the matchup with LeBron and the Cavs coming in round two. And then lastly, we'll go to Cleveland to speak with Chris Manning of Locked On Cavs about the Cavs overcoming the Pacers in round one and if they have any hope of knocking off the number one seeded Toronto Raptors. It's all coming up. The biggest stories with the local experts on Locked On NBA. You are Locked On the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Hi guys, welcome to Locked On NBA. I am your host for the Monday show, Josh Lloyd. I'm also the host of Locked On Fantasy Basketball and the lead analyst at BasketballMonster.com. Make sure you're finding me on Twitter at RedRock underscore Beeble. The playoffs are in full swing. We're ready to get stuck into round two. Some of round two has already begun. So we've got lots to talk about as usual. So let's get to it. David Locke, the host of the Locked On Jazz podcast, host, of course, of Locked On NBA as well, and the founder of the Locked On Podcast Network. The Utah Jazz are through to the second round of the NBA playoffs. Now, when I spoke to you in the preseason, you were very, very optimistic about this Jazz season. Did you see this coming? Well, I thought it was a discussion, as I think we had then, of whether or not a good defensive team and an okay offensive team how that was different than a very, very good uh, offensive team and a not very good defensive team, right? That was kind of the discussion. Why did everybody have Minnesota Minnesota and Denver thought of so highly and Utah not? Um, So in that sense, I would say, you know, the fact that they were in that mix probably uh, did not surprise me. The fact that I think they're very clearly the third best team in the Western Conference, if you look at how they've played since Gobert's gotten healthy, uh, that surprises me. And then the fact that Donovan Mitchell is not just really good, but is a superstar has surprised me. And I think Donovan Mitchell has gone to a, to, to a pretty unique level uh, with the way he's played in the playoffs and then played the whole season. Yeah, look, the way he played in this series was, was phenomenal. The, the amount of times that, that watching the series, he you drive to the lane and you think, there's no way this is going in, but he was still able to contort his body or get the right angle on those finishes. It was pretty uh, pretty astounding. Have you seen an improvement in that area of his game over the past month or two, or is that something he came in initially and you thought, okay, this is, this is special with this finishing ability? Because it felt to me, um, from someone who's not watching you know, every single Jazz game, that over the last couple of weeks, month or so, that the finishing really stepped up a notch. It actually happened in November, and that's kind of the thing that's so special about Donovan is how fast these things happen. So it happened, he came to Utah as a two-foot jumper, and basically the coaching staff put together uh, a play sequence for him to take home for the summer, to after summer league, that gave him, I think, you know, 11 different ways to finish off of one foot, and the different ways he was going to have to, a lot of Harden in there, a lot of different players uh, from the NBA, a lot of Tony Parker 
videos, and then Donovan went to the gym and very much like he had a history exam and worked, you know, watched one over and over and then worked on it. And he said he worked on it slow and then a little faster. But when he first, and then finally against a defender. Uh, but when he first got in the league, he really struggled in the opening probably three weeks. And once he got through the first three weeks, then it that those struggles went away. So he's been a very high-level finisher at the rim uh, since probably December 1st. And it's, it's you can look at finishing percentage and that sort of stuff at the rim, but it's more the, the difficulty of the attempts that he is forced into that he's able to convert that really makes you step up and go, okay, well, this kid is really something special because some of those shots that he's attempting, they, they feel impossible. But as we saw in game six, in that third quarter, they just kept going in. He kept carrying this team and leading them through to this victory. But David, I, I want to switch now to, to looking to the future, to looking to this series coming up against the Houston Rockets. The Jazz played the Rockets four times during the season. They were unsuccessful in all four of those if for jazz fans listening and for nba fans listening what can they do differently or how can they make this series a competitive series as opposed to the regular season series so that to me you know the first thing i would say is i think three of those games happened in the first 30 games of the year yep. so that was not a particularly good jazz team at that point um but i will say that that's when i knew the rockets were really good because the Jazz have always defended the Rockets as well as about anyone in the NBA. They drop the big, they take away the restricted area, they hug to the shooters, they make, you know, the guard is trailing Harden, trying to keep him off the three-point line, and then Gobert's defending both Capella and Harden. And when the Rockets blitz the Jazz in the first three games, in the opening 30 games of the season, that to me was the sign that this Rockets team was completely different than the teams of the past because the Jazz had always defended them well. If you walk through those games, the common thread in maybe this is just what great teams do is an explosion. So it's James Harden, 22 points in the first game in the first quarter. It's Eric Gordon late in the third, hitting four threes in a five-possession sequence and them going on about a 38-7 to run. Uh, it's Ryan Anderson hitting a bunch of shots in a row, um, in what was a jazz lead at one point in, I think, the third meeting. And then in the fourth meeting, of all people, it's Luke Bamute scoring 11 straight points. So that's the, the jazz. I haven't looked at it. I would guess if you look at the quarters, and I heard Tom Thibodeau use this and thought it was pretty shallow, frankly, in the last series, it's the same kind of story where the, I would guess that of the uh, 16 quarters that have been played, I would guess that most of them are very close and then that there are these three or four quarters in which the Rockets just explode on you, and that's what they do. And so if the Jazz are going to make this a series, they're going to have to uh, try to eliminate those moments, but I, that may be easier said than done. Unlike the comparison with the Jazz and the Thunder where Gobert didn't play in the majority of those regular season contests, he played in three of the four games against Houston in the regular season. But as you mentioned, three of the first three games that they played and Gobert was in two of those, they all occurred before the 18th of, uh, of December. And that last game came in February. And that was a game that the Rockets played without Eric Gordon and Clint Capella. So it is hard to get a full read on how this series is going to go, especially considering, as you mentioned, how well the Jazz have played over this uh, over this past you know, two to three months stretch. But today we got news uh, of a pretty significant blow to the Jazz's hopes, at least for the, the start of the series, with Ricky Rubio being out as Woj is reporting for about 10 days with a hamstring injury. Do you think that it'll be Royce O'Neal that, that moves into that role? And how is that going to be a challenge that the Jazz can overcome? 
Well, I, I, I do think that that is, uh, and then also on the flip side, we got Ben DeBose of Lockdown Rockets reporting that Luke Bamute has been upgraded to uh, questionable. So the injury swing here on the the eve of the playoff series uh, was cer- is certainly considerable. Um, I, I think that uh, what jumps out to me, at least, uh, is... So I think Rubio's a loss, and yes, I think Royce O'Neal will jump in. The Rockets switch more than any team in the NBA, which forces you to play at least some isolation or try to find some matchups in that switching to try to take advantage of. None of that is Rubio's uh, strength. So I do think it's a considerable loss because he's a great defender. He's long. He matches up on Chris Paul. He's another body. Um, But... In regards to whether he was going to have a large impact on the series, I, I'm a little doubtful on that, just in the sense that if the Rockets are really switching, Ricky's not a guy who's going to go one-on-one and try to beat you, or a guy who's going to take a bunch of contested shots that break that kind of switching defense. So, you know, it's a considerable, don't misunderstand me, it's a considerable blow, but this matchup, it may not be as big a blow as it would have been if, frankly, they were playing the Thunder. The Thunder, Rubio was vital. He was picking apart that overshifting defense, knew exactly how to react to things, and was incredibly important. This series, it may be a little different. I'll leave it with one thing regarding Rubio is on the uh, matchup on the 7th of December, uh, Alec Burks actually uh, jumped in for 17 points in 27 minutes on 50% shooting. We saw the sort of impact he had in Game 6 as well. So he is going to take some of Rubio's minutes, and perhaps that could be an interesting wrinkle that the Jazz bring to that matchup. David, it's going to be really interesting to see how this all pans out with, uh, with Mesut Mahmute coming back, Rubio out, how the Jazz can match up against the Rockets. Everyone's going to be rooting for a competitive series, and I know you're going to be at the uh, at the forefront of that now, bringing it all to us on Locked on Jazz and, of course, uh, across the radio. Thanks for jumping on to your own show here and talking about uh, what is a, a team that everyone is really getting behind, and uh, it's really hard not to like them. Well, I think the one thing that's interesting in this series is Game Two is not till Wednesday, so the Jazz had a brutal turnaround. You know, finished the game probably around midnight, probably left the arena at one and flew twelve hours later to Houston. The Game Two is not till Wednesday, so if Quinn Snyder, who should very well may win coach of the year one of the best coaches in the league is going to have an impact on the series it'll be on wednesday he'll have a very difficult time having an impact on on in that game one yep we will uh definitely be uh tuning in and watching how this all unfolds uh so many people always like to root for the underdogs that's what the jazz are so we're going to be uh i reckon a large portion of the nba community will be be behind them david josh always a pleasure continue the great work love the monday shows thank you now we talk to Sean Woodley, the host of the Locked On Raptors podcast. Uh, the Toronto Raptors getting themselves uh, ready for a round two series after getting past the Washington Wizards in six games. Sean, um, how's the uh, how are the collective schwinkers in Toronto after that? Uh, <laughs> after that, um, I guess I don't know what the right word is. Um, worrying portion of that first round. How much worry was there, and how much relief is there now? Uh, yeah, the sphincters are, uh, released. Is that the word we're looking for? That's I gross, think so. but, yeah, uh, yeah that, that's, that's pretty much what it is. Um, it's, uh, you know, people got pretty 
down after that game four loss where the Wizards uh, kind of came back. Although they didn't, they didn't play particularly well in game four. The Raptors just played worse. I think that was kind of my takeaway from that game. Um, and, and so people were kind of down after that. But I think the last two games, especially with Fred Van Vliet coming back in game six and the bench looking like the bench again, I think that kind of, you know, kind of made people just kind of relax a little bit and kind of appreciate that this team is different. And, you know, there was like a lot of conversation about whether or not the Raptors were going to change and, and sort of, you know, take their regular season identity switch and have it translate to the playoffs and I think it totally happened like I I think you know there were games where they kind of got a little you know like I mentioned game four there were games where they kind of got off track a little bit and reverted to past habits but I think for the most part uh you know the the Raptors did what they could do within what their system is and also what the Wizards were giving them I think the Wizards were very key on stopping the secondary guys from killing them I think after the games games one and two where the Raptors got a bunch of threes up the secondary guys killed them I think they really sort of just decided to stop trapping Kyle and DeMar they decided to hang back kind of dared Kyle and DeMar to beat them and eventually they did a couple games didn't go great, but I think overall the Raptors kind of stuck to what makes them the Raptors, and I think people should be pretty excited about that. And honestly, you know, for we'll talk about the second round. I, I think this is going to be, you know, for all the series that have happened in the past where people have been stressed out and Raptors anguish has just like dominated the internet. I think this is going to be one of the first series in Raptors history where people can just kind of chill and whatever the result is, you know, to be it'll suck if they lose, but I think for the most part people are pretty content because. No, I, I think what happened in the first round kind of justified everything, and it proved that, yeah, this team can change and win a playoff series reasonably handily. I, you know, it was a six-game series, but I, I think that throughout most of the series, you kind of tell the Raptors were the better team, so I think people should be pretty excited. It's going to be obviously interesting for the round two uh, series against Cleveland. We'll get to that in, in a second. I, I want to touch on a, a one thing about that round one series. The absence of Fred Van Vliet, I think, is something that is was really important in those early games, something that is underappreciated by many people. I was very qu- critical of Dwayne Casey, and don't get me wrong, I've been critical of Dwayne Casey for a very long time. I thought he did a good job this year, but I was critical of the way that he handled that final game of the season in Miami of putting that closing lineup back into the end of the game when the game was meaningless, and then Van Vliet, who was already dealing with another injury, came in and... Uh, hurt his shoulder and that cost him those first few games of the playoffs I didn't see the necessity to do it I thought there was always a risk that someone was going to get hurt and then we actually had Van Vliet who is an extremely important part of this team get hurt how important was he to get back towards the end of that series and you know how just try to articulate just how important he is to what this team does yeah, first of all, to touch on the last game of the season, I think, you know, that game was weird because the Raptors didn't have any of their G League guys because they were fresh off playing in the G League finals. They were going with like 11 guys on the bench and Fred was probably going to be playing crunch time in that game, garbage time in that game anyway, uh, considering, you know, I mean, maybe DeLon goes out there, maybe you, you could just completely empty the bench. But, you know, I think there was a good chance considering that, you know, Lorenzo Brown wasn't there and Malcolm Miller and all the guys who sort of are back at the back of the bench who have played garbage time in the past because because they weren't with the team, Fred was probably going to be out there anyway. Whether or not they should have played hard in that last game is a different question, but uh, I think the risk of Fred getting injured was kind of always going to be there. And in terms of how important he is, like, yeah, he is. It's kind of crazy that a second-year undrafted free agent is this essential to the team, but there's an argument to be made that he was, like, the third or fourth most important player on the Raptors this season. Obviously not the third or fourth most talented, but, you know, the way... 
he makes that bench unit just kind of click. It, it, you know, until he gets in there, it's just kind of this array of interesting and sort of varied skill set guys who don't quite have anyone to kind of lead them. And, and Fred comes in, he adds a, an element of shooting that is not there when DeLon writes out there with, say, Norman Powell. He adds an element of sort of decision-making that, not, that Norman Powell definitely doesn't bring. Um, and just his ability to sort of break guys down off the dribble that wasn't there at the start of the season, but it kind of developed over the course of the year. And now he can just blow by dudes. And it's, and it's so essential to keeping that offense running because there have been points this season where the bench you know it's always been a good defensive unit and that's always kind of what they rely on there have been times where it hasn't been the best offensive you know five-man group but fred kind of opens up at least some sort of ceiling or even a floor i guess would be the better way to coin it you know there's a floor on offense when Fred's in there that's not quite there when he's not. And at some at some points, the defense isn't quite good if Fred's not in there to sort of, you know, ma- maintain and sort of tread water with the offense struggling. So, yeah, he, he is just – he's such a – I mean, he's just like a – it's gotten cliche to compare him to Kyle Lowry, but he has a lot of the same virtues and skill sets that Kyle Lowry has. And to have a second guy like that who brings that set of skills, it, it's really nice to have. And to have him in the crunch time lineup where he can kind of – create a little bit, not have Kyle and DeMar dominate every single possession. It's been just so key in changing how the Raptors play in all different parts of the game, and in particular late in games. He's just been uh, the maybe the biggest surprise for me this season. I did not expect Fred to be any part of this rotation or anything like that. I thought DeLon Wright was just so obviously going to be the backup point guard, and that was it. And then he and then Fred came on the scene this season and was just incredible. So it's awesome to have him back. You saw just how good that bench unit is with him in there. I think they were like a plus 13 or something like that in their limited minutes uh, or something, a plus 10, something like that in the fourth quarter uh, when they had them all out there in the uh, in game six. So yeah, he, he's, he's super important, and it's really good for the Raptors that he's back. And I think the three days off between Game 6 and Game 1 are going to be huge to try to get him back to 100%. We saw Dwayne Casey uh, finally go to some fourth-quarter Jonas Valanciunas minutes in that uh, Round 1 series. He hadn't happened in, in the earlier games, and, and Valanciunas was fantastic. And I've been a, a big proponent of his for a very long time. But how do you see yeah, – we switching to Round 2 here – what does what do you think Casey does? Can Valanciunas stay on the court more against this Cavs team? Are we going to see more Ibaka at centre? Are we going to see more Jakob Pertl? How has those that those big man rotations gone in previous matchups against Cleveland? Or is there a change that Casey you know, realizes that you know, the way Valanciunas was able to dominate those latter games of round one can that continue on into round two? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I don't think we'll see what happened last year where Valanciunas got benched and moved to the second unit and kind of came in and just kind of feast against the, the Cavs reserves. And that was fine last year. I mean, he had a game where he had like 23 points, but it was at the expense of Channing Fry raining threes on his head for an entire quarter. And I think the Cavs were very happy to live with that. And I think this season, the way Jonas has played defense, it used to be at a point where he was just like a non-starter. You couldn't have him out there and have a functional pick-and-roll defense. He's been much better this season. The scheme has changed a bit. They don't have him coming up quite as high. He's hanging back near the rim, and his verticality, I think you saw it in Game 6, was probably the best example. Like, that dude has just gotten so good at not picking up fouls around the rim and just contesting everything, and, you know, he might not rack up crazy block totals, but he's just become a very good positional defender at the rim, um, and that's really helped to keep him on the floor, and crucial minutes he closed the last two games of the series and that's something we didn't see for the first four games didn't see all that much in previous seasons and you know that's going to be key and also I think with the Cavs 
it kind of depends on what lineups they're running out. Today they started Tristan Thompson. If Thompson's going to start, then yeah, I think you can roll Jonas out there and feel pretty comfortable. Um, if not, and they have Kevin Love out there, that's a little trickier just because Jonas still getting out to the perimeter and stuff like that. Like that's not really his bag. Um, but in the last game, or it might have been the second last game against the Cavs in the regular season, they did a thing where Serge Ibaka guarded Kevin Love, and they just stuck uh, Jonas Valanciunas on Jeff Green, and were like, "All right, dude, you want to beat us? Go ahead." It's kind of something I wish the Raptors did against the Wizards and just stuck Valanciunas on Markeith Morris because Morris was terrible in the series, um, and that could have been a way to sort of you know maybe get Serge Ibaka to get to marching quartet a little bit. I don't know, um, but yeah, no, it was a. I just think that there's enough wrinkles that they can throw out there, and they have enough big men that they should be fine in terms of whatever the, the Cavs are going to throw out there. I think Pascal Siakam is going to get a lot of run in this series. He's one of the better LeBron options they have. As few options as they have, Pascal Siakam is one of those guys. So maybe there are times where you know you want to roll out the Siakam-Abaka front court for long stretches. I think that's going to be key in this series. It didn't really get used that much in the regular season, but... That's one of their better big man combinations, and I think they might have been saving it a little bit. They didn't bust it out against the Cavs at all this year. I think that's probably why, um, and we're sort of saving it because it's going to be key against the Cavs, especially if they're going to play love at the five. But there will be a place for Jonas in this series. Anytime Tristan Thompson's on the floor, and he played really well today, but I think Jonas Valanciunas is going to be a nice guy to go up against Thompson to sort of neutralize that and maybe sort of have a bit of an advantage there. We're all going to be watching with interest to see whether the Raptors can exercise their LeBron demons. You can check out Sean on Locked On Raptors for all your Raptors information as we watch this second round series. Sean, thanks for coming on. Absolutely, man. Th- uh, thank you for having me on, and we'll uh, do it again soon. Thanks, Sean. Cheers. Now let's go to Cleveland, where we check in with the host of the Locked On Cavs podcast, Chris Manning, after the Cavs completed their round one victory. Took them seven games to get over the Indiana Pacers, and now they get ready to face the Toronto Raptors in round two. Chris, um, a relief to uh, get out of the first round, which is not something that a LeBron team or a Cleveland team in recent years would have uh, ever really said. Absolutely not something I think we would have said about this in the last three years. I think in in each of the last three years, they've had moments where they were pushed in the first round, but not like this, obviously. Never to seven games, never in a a four or five matchup. Um, Never... You know, I think pushed to this brink. And LeBron, I mean, after the game, you Kevin Love talked about being a little bit burnt out. LeBron James said, "I'm burnt." Um, he obviously was exhausted, and 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 I think this is a team that went through a lot. And but I think, I, I think for a lot of the guys, it was the first time in the fire too. So I think some of that has to be expected. I think as much as we can look at today and in this game and say that the Cavs won with two four members of their 2016 Finals team in the starting lineup. This is a different group, and this is a team kind of going through a lot of this for the first time. This is not exactly the same core that um, those kind of knows what this is like for a lot of the, these guys. This is the first time they've gone through something like this, playing alongside LeBron James. Well, you alluded to it there with uh, with the, the guys from the championship team starting. Tristan Thompson, who had barely played at all in the series, was a surprise re-addition to the starting lineup. George Hill was back. He was healthy, but they didn't go with him at point guard. They went with LeBron uh, as the point guard. Tristan Thompson sliding in there next to Kevin Love. Was that a surprise for you? And do you see this new alignment sticking for round two, or will it be a constant case of sort of musical chairs with the way that Lou uh, arranges his starting lineup? So Ty Lue would not commit to that starting lineup being a, a set thing moving forward, which I think I think makes sense. But I do I, was a surprise to me because Tristan had played under it was like seven point eight minutes a game coming into this game, and he played the the type of performance that we haven't seen from him in in a year or two. Um, and, and especially not this season that has not been this was not the type of Tristan that we've seen. He was aggressive on the boards. He 
He scored and took advantage of these open opportunities. He had a really nice block at the end of the near the end of the game. It's a really great Tristan Thompson performance that really kind of did come out of nowhere. Um, I, I I think the the one adjustment you'll see will probably be. At the very least, George Hill, I think, should start. I think you saw in the second half of this game how vital it was to have a second ball handler on the floor with LeBron. I think particularly he matches up you know, well with um, Toronto. And look, look at him guarding Kyle Lowry, I think, is the length and the, and the strength to kind of handle Kyle, at least, and, and get battle Kyle, which will be really key for the Cavs to win that series. But I, I don't know. I, don't, I think Tristan, I think, has earned minutes. Uh, maybe not as much as he played in this game, but I think he's earned his his minutes. I think he should be ahead of Nance right now. And but I, I think you could still see some different looks for the Cavs when we get to Toronto next week. Well, you talked about Nance. The three guys that came across in at the trade deadline, they combined for one point. Um, that was by Nance. He played 13 minutes, and that was the highest minute total of those three guys. Jordy Clarkson played only 11 minutes, and Rodney Hood only played seven minutes. So it was back to the Cavs of. Old, I guess you could say, old, obviously, minus you know, Kyrie Irving and other guys who, who were around in the past. But is these guys have struggled through the playoffs, these, these new additions. Um, you know, how do they, how can they be of, of use or how can they be impactful in round two with their impact seemingly diminishing by the game? Well, I would just note Hill also came across at the deadline, not in that same trade, but also a deadline acquisition. Um, he's going to be vital. I think he's the third most important cab, either him or Kyle Korver fits in there. But um, you know, I think I think all of them need to do something. I think if you look at Jordan Clarkson, I think 11 minutes is, is about right for him. But they need him to just be competent when he's on the floor. If he's going to shoot, he needs to, to take advantage of the opportunities. And he missed some really good looks in this game, looks he frankly should be making if he's going to be playing. Nance, I think, has to do... Um, he, I don't know how much he hasn't. He's played it. He's played this down when he's been asked about it. Um, when I've talked to him about it, but Nance uh, had a hamstring injury after his really, really good start with the Cavs. It does not look the same since. I wonder if he just has never quite gotten healthy. That that's my working theory, at least. In it. But I think he needs to go back to more of the guy who was who was rolling really well, who was um, playing some really good defense and and doing a lot of what Tristan did in this game. Um, one thing he could take in particular from Tristan is he's just not always the most physical screener. Tristan is very, very good at bodying guys on screens and making them feel him. Nance needs to get better at that and being consistent at, um, I think, screening on guys. And with Hood, I think they really could use Rodney Hood's scoring and ability to create his own shot. I think it could be a really key part of non-LeBron lineups. Um, in these moments where LeBron is going to need five minutes off in a game, the, the margin of error there is just so small. He's just been so inconsistent, and I think if he can get in a rhythm, that would go a long way to kind of helping the Cavs in this moment because it makes them less reliant on guys like Jeff Green and guys like Jordan Clarkson. This Cavs team, and LeBron in particular, have had significant advantage over Toronto over the past few seasons, and the Raptors have always you know, not been scared. Scared is the wrong word, but always been like, oh, it's LeBron, we're just going to get smashed here. And that was the case last season, we've seen it in previous years, but it takes on a different tenor this this season. Um, how do you feel as someone covering the Cavs that this Cavs team matches up against Toronto this year? We saw a game earlier in the year where the Raptors had a big lead on on uh, on the Cavs and the Cavs steamrolled home and beat them. Do you think that that mental edge could come into play during this series? Yeah, I don't think those regular season games tell us a ton because I think it's really, really hard to you know know exactly... Um, what those games mean because the Cavs were still new. The Raptors, I, you know, the one game that the Cavs won in particular, Kyle Lowry had went and seen Villanova play the night before the national championship game and was just clearly not really 
um, feeling great after after a very active night the night before, and where he flew in and met the met the team in Cleveland. So it's tough, but I, I think there's a couple things that we do know. I think number one, Toronto is going to be the deeper team. Um, it's being a big advantage for them all year. I think number two, they they're certainly playing a style that I think could push the Cavs, and they're certainly a better cohesive unit. But the other side of this is, you know, I think Kevin Love should be in a better position in the series. I think he matches up pretty well with what Toronto's going to throw at him, um, particularly Abaka. And I think Valanciunas and him, and, and it's why Tristan, I think, will matter because he can limit what Valanciunas and Pert will do and who are problems for Love to some extent because they're just bigger than him. But they also have no one that can guard LeBron James. And I, I love OG Anubi. Pascal Siakam has improved a lot from when the Cavs played Toronto last year, and he I think he was barely in the series. But they have no one that can really guard LeBron. And I think one of the things you saw in the this Indiana game um, was just when Le- LeBron could get any shot he wanted in in this game. He had to score a lot, and yes, it's exhausting for him. And they, the Cavs would like to have other options, but a big reason why the Cavs were able to come ahead is there's just no answer for LeBron. And that and Toronto doesn't have a guy that I I would feel comfortable with putting on LeBron James for for however many minutes. OG. Pascal Siakam, C.J. Miles are the guys that they tried, and I've, I don't think it's unfair to say that those guys just aren't up to doing that. It's going to be a really intriguing series. We know LeBron. We know how good LeBron is. We know the deficiencies on this Cavs team. We know the Raptors were the one seed, but Cleveland is clearly in with a chance in this in this series, so we're all going to be tuned pretty, uh, pretty intently into this series to see how it all pans out. But, of course, you can check everything out from a Cavs perspective over on Locked on Cavs with Chris throughout the week as this series unfolds. Chris, thanks for coming on Locked on NBA and, uh, and talking about uh, squeaking through round one. Thanks for having me, Josh. And that's another episode of Locked On NBA in the books. We've got round two set now. Some interesting matchups in both the Western and Eastern Conference. We're going to be covering all that, of course, here on Locked On NBA throughout the week. And make sure you are checking out all the individual team podcasts as well, right across the Locked On Podcast Network for the teams in the playoffs and the teams out of the playoffs as they try and work out what they're going to be doing in their offseason, player reviews, checking out new coaches, all that sort of stuff. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at RedRock underscore B-Ball. And if you are listening to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, go leave us a five-star rating and a review and make sure you subscribe. It's the best way to make sure you never miss an episode. We are done here, guys. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. See ya.